If you have a voice, then you have an obligation to use it. Now more than ever, it's crucial we speak up and speak out against any injustices we may witness. You're listening to Unsweet and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 19 of season two. In today's episode, we speak to Jael Karandi about the aftermath of George Floyd's death, how she used her voice to push her university to end ties with the Minneapolis police and inspire change nationwide. Hey, it's Danielle and Zaina, and welcome to Unsweetened and Unfiltered, the podcast where we elevate the voices of women by sharing their stories of struggle while also highlighting their success. We wanted to create a space for women to feel like they're not alone in whatever hardship they may be facing. Some conversations may be lighthearted, while others may touch upon taboo topics ranging from mental health to women's bodies and spiritual struggles, and we don't shy away from any of it. But our overall mission is to make every woman realize that she is not alone. We are all in this together, I promise. Our sole purpose is to build relationships, not barriers, between you and the woman who may need you. We're here to provide inspiration and to build courage. Tune in every Wednesday where we'll feature an insightful guest who will help us reach these goals. We laugh, we ugly cry, and we'll probably laugh some more. So plug in your headphones, grab your favorite cup of coffee or shea, and get ready to become a part of this unbreakable sisterhood. You are tuning into season two of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. I think it's really incredible that we're having such powerful conversations on the podcast with our families and even in our workplace. Um, Earlier this week, I had a Zoom meeting with my entire building at work, and we talked about what was going on. We talked about the Black Lives Movement and how we as a station did our job. Um, And after we were done discussing that, we were shown a two-minute video made by one of our Black creative directors. And this video was just the most powerful thing. And after he was done showing us the video, he said something that stuck with me and seeing someone that you know at work who's always professional get a little bit emotional to me that struck a chord me so this is what he said that stuck with me think about what you believe not what you post not what you hashtag not what you share not what you report but what you really believe sit down with with yourself and think about it then ask yourself two questions what can I do and what will I do that's honestly powerful and those are the simplest questions and you don't think twice about those questions but when you listen to it and from that aspect and that perspective you really realize like on social media it's awesome everybody's sharing and we're reposting we want people with large platforms to do the same to get the word out but at the same time how often are we just sharing but not really soaking in what we're sharing and you know sometimes i'm not saying like you don't believe in what you're sharing but it's like how can you go beyond that like if you agree with the post that you're sharing what else are you doing to continue that fight because i feel like Again, these posts and these shares disappear within 24 hours, but the racism that's still happening has not yet disappeared, and it's still going on in the real world. That's a great point. I also think he mentioned, I think sometimes we get overwhelmed because it's such a large problem. We think there's no way I can solve racism just by myself, and it it really is overwhelming and discouraging when you think about it like that. But I think what he was trying to say is, what can I do? What's in my ability? What's in my reach? How can I make a difference? And what will I do to do that? 
And that's great because we, we've talked about this before and in future episodes, we have this exact conversation, how we are not capable of holding the entire world's trauma on our shoulders, but you, you as yourself, what can you do? And it's incredible because today's special guest is the University of Minnesota's student body president, Jael Karandi, and she's incredible in herself because if you guys have not heard her name, I would be shocked because she was one of the first to actually start a petition to sever ties with the Minneapolis police on student grounds, on the university's grounds. And all she did was just, and I don't want to say all she did, but I just want to say how she started it. It started with just a letter, a petition that she had some, you know, some other students sign. And it basically said like, as students, we don't feel safe with the Minneapolis police presence on our student grounds. And within 24 hours, the president of the university answered her and they made some adjustments. And that's why I'm trying to get at is do not underestimate the power of your voice. And that's exactly what we talked um, about with our guest. We talked about how youth political activism plays a role in the entire world political sphere and whatnot. And how like sometimes we can't discount the young generation. They're the ones that are honestly just they're on the ground and they're changing things and they're doing it and they're they're showing up and they're showing out. And something like a letter and a petition, look what it started. Because it's not just now the University of Minnesota. You see other universities are starting to follow suit and other even organizations are starting to follow suit. And this is just such an important conversation, but it's just, it's also meant to kind of push you and motivate you to find your calling within this whole situation and what's going on and how we can help our black brothers and sisters. Because again, do not allow this to be a social media trend. And I know you guys are seeing this, but I, I seriously can't stress it enough. Do not allow this to be a social media trend. If this is any motivation, like you were saying, to get up and do something, and if you think it's too small, if you think your voice is too quiet, I feel like JL is a perfect example of how you can use your voice to just, it's a wavelength. Like it's its its one person can change all universities across America. I think that we have the power to do that. Absolutely. And we let Jael actually introduce herself. So she has an amazing track record, an amazing resume for a senior a student in college right now. And it's incredible because I know I've been out of college for so many years, but it's like I look up to her and it just gives me hope to see that there are more people like her right now in our schools and our universities that are making changes. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode and inshallah we can continue to make changes and inshallah we can always stand alongside one another, especially the black community. And that's what honestly being Muslim is all about. So if one of us is hurting, all of us are hurting. So are you ready to dive in, Zaina? Let's do it. I just want to thank you, Jael, for joining us today straight from Minnesota. Of course, you're in the state of where everything took place, where the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police brutality happened. And I know you have had a very emotional last two weeks, and it's been very hard on everybody, even from within the black community and outside of the black community, because, of course, we should all be allies to one another. and We should always be there for one another. Before we jump into the topics at hand, specifically just talking about how we can inspire the youth to do more to create change. I would love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah. So hello, everyone. Um, thank you for having me on the show today. I'm really appreciative of you reaching out to me and asking me to be here in this space. So I'm originally from Kenya. I was actually born in Nairobi, Kenya, and we moved to the States when I was about one and a half. 
So I essentially grew up here all my life. I like to say Nairobi born, but Minnesota raised. Um, but make no mistake, I was raised in an African household. Yeah. Um, my parents said it doesn't matter where you are. These are the values and the morals that you will grow up with. And that is exactly how it worked. Um, I'm the youngest of five siblings. And almost all my siblings went to the University of Minnesota. So it was kind of in the family's norm, yeah. I would say to go there, but I knew I wanted to go to a top 20 business program. Um, I knew I wanted to do something a little different. All my siblings, um, most of my siblings actually were very geared towards the medicine field and kind of my dad kind of wanted us all to be doctors. That did not work out. Um, but in the best way, I, my dad now is always calling me his CEO. So I think, That's awesome. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we're still doing well, but yeah. So basically deciding to come to the U, but even before that, in high school, I got very involved with our student council. And that was a chance for me to kind of advocate for students. And I was talking with our superintendent. Um, I was in high school and we got our, we had a black superintendent, which was amazing. And he was so engaged with student voice. He just continuously harped upon student voice. And coming from a superintendent, which I maybe saw once a year to having my superintendent in my school often, it was such a different, it was, it was so different to me. And I sat on our student advisory board to our board of education. And we, I was the chair of that board in my, I was the co-chair in my junior year and then my, the sole chair my senior year. And that board was focused on looking into district initiatives, but we also went to the Capitol and advocated for student needs at high school. So I can remember meeting with um, Representative Lyndon Carlson and just talking through like, this is what we want to see in after school programs, or this is what we'd like to do. And I remember that specific day we went was also Support the U Day. And Support the U Day is something that we put on as a university where our, we get together as many university students as we can and we go to the Capitol. Now, I was in high school at the time and seeing all these college students, I, like, I want to do this. Yeah, it's um, so cool. Yeah, it, it was totally cool. And so going into college, I knew I wanted to do student government and I was a interned my first year. And then in my second year, I served as a representative to our board of regents. And so I was representing thousands of students at that time, 60,000 students about at that time and working with our board of regents and student voice. And then in that year, I decided to run as vice president. And we ran as a ticket um, with the other, the, the president at the time. And we were thankfully successful and had a good first semester. There was challenges as there always is with any government or any leadership position. And then at the end of the first semester, our president decided to resign. And so immediately as she resigned, I immediately became president. That's awesome. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so since Jan late January, I, I've been president, which has been definitely a ride through COVID. Of course. <laughs> East. Um, it's definitely been challenging, but just the amount of student advocates that are so ready to do something for students are so ready to say, how can we make students' lives better? Or continuously identifying opportuni opportunities where they're saying student life is suffering, or they're saying students aren't being met with the needs that they have has been amazing to see. And the, the response that I've gotten from the student advocates that I get to work with has been tremendous. That's incredible. First of all, I feel like I didn't accomplish anything in college <laughs> listening to all that that you were able to accomplish. Same. Like amazing. And I'm, I'm so proud that there are young people in the world who are stepping up and, and doing what, they, what they're supposed to do right now. And I, I commend you for that so much. But I want to go back to talking about your superintendent and why it's so important that we have minorities, especially black people in high positions, because they know adversity, they know the struggle, and they're going to do their best to make sure that 
the younger generation isn't going through what they went through. I think there's many reasons I could sit here and talk to you about representation for hours. But representation, the bottom line, it matters. It's not just a quota fill. It is not just a matter of do we have this person to make it look as if we're diverse? Diverse talent, the reason it's so valuable and the reason why firms are now investing in it is you have such a difference in thought. We talk about you create these silos or you create this group think when you're around the same people with the same experiences, with the same background, right? We're all thinking about the same thing. We all think the same, like the best option is always the best option until somebody challenges it, until somebody brings in a new status quo, their own new norms. And that's what we see, right? So having a Black superintendent that was able to come in and be so empathetic to the situation that these students were facing. I don't think any one person can come and say, unless they've lived that exact life, I understand exactly what you're going through, but they can empathize with it. Or they can say, I went through something similar. Let me tell you what I experienced. And I went to a high school that was majority underrepresented students. So when you're looking at these different students coming from all over the metro, it was amazing to see a superintendent that said, oh, this is the need that exists and I can validate this. I can make sure students are heard. And I'm not just saying, oh, let's go look at the numbers, right? And higher education has a lot to do with like, what's the test score of this school? Where does this high school rank? Where do you rank in terms of this test score? How are your children doing in terms of their K through five? Like, are they ready to go into middle school? Are they ready to go into college? It's this constant assessment. But when you start to come back to the needs that students have as just even like on like objectively, like Maslow's hierarchy, do they have food? Do they have a place to stay? Are they mentally well? Can they be at school? What is their situation at home? And that's why when we go into talking about what does education need, we look at all these different objective measures and students sometimes just want to feel like I can actually do school. Like the act of coming to school and being able to do it. So seeing somebody that was invested in listening to what students needed was so much more important to me because he was more invested in the longevity of this, right? It wasn't just like, let's get our test scores up next year. It's saying in 10 years, I want to make sure our students are so well set up for success that a test score is a byproduct of everything that we've done to ensure that they are successful. That's incredible. And that's super important. This is coming from somebody who is black, who has went through the school system and you've Mm -hmm. seen such a difference. When you see somebody that looks like you, and that's true, not everybody has the same experience. Nobody has the same experience. You can literally live, Zane and I, we're from the same village, we have the same background and everything, but you and I have completely different experiences in life, and we need to be able to encompass that in our schools. And it's so interesting, like even this just on a smaller scale, like I had an English teacher who I'm Palestinian, she was Palestinian, I found comfort in her classroom. Out of the, into all my classrooms, out of all my years of schooling, it was her classroom that I found comfort in. Of course, she's, we weren't the same age. She was my teacher. Not that she was much older if she's listening to this, but she, she under, yeah, she under, like, I felt like she understood me. She understood my background and everything like that. And students find comfort in that. And yes, I was able to go to her classroom. Like you said, like people can have the act of being able to go to school. I was able to go to her classroom and just feel welcomed. And that's super important. You also, when when you see people in positions of power that look like you, it makes it more realistic for you to attain that position, right? When you're seeing the same homogenous view in terms of leadership, you don't see yourself there. You can't place yourself there. It takes a lot of imagination, a lot of grit to imagine your space there, which is the reason representation matters. You take away what a child has to do to continuously create this imaginative 
role and they see somebody there. They now have created a mentor, formally or informally, and are, are aspiring towards this individual. And that is even almost more so more important is that you've 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 brought realism to what somebody wants to do, right? You've given this, you've given them this opportunity to say, I can work towards something and it feels real to them rather than like I don't see it anywhere. Now I'm just kind of walking in this weird space trying to get to I don't know where. But when you give them this opportunity to say, I see you there. This is also what I want to do. Or I also can be in a position of power where I'm the last final say, or I'm the, like, I call the shots here. It gives them motivation. And then you start to see a shift, right? We want to see generational shifts. We're not just looking for next year. I want to see this spike in numbers. It's To me, longevity is so much more important. Oh, absolutely. And and like you said, it is kind of like more attainable when you see someone who looks like you, someone from the same background as you in a position that you aspire to be in. And that's why diversity is such an important thing. And I think that's something that I will advocate for the rest of my life because I work in a newsroom and when I see people of different colors, backgrounds, but when I see mix a mixed newsroom, I get excited because I know, okay, I belong here and I'm not going to feel like an outsider at my own workplace. Yeah, to both your points, you guys, it's just allowing somebody, a young student, to realize that uh, their dream can actually be transformed into reality. Yeah. And that's the thing, like we we push them to dream and dream and dream, but how do we allow them to keep dreaming if what they want to become isn't reality? And that's why we have to show them that it can become reality, that it can become realistic, that you are more than capable to hold this position. And that's the thing with even our workplaces. And I've noticed this, like I've noticed, I've noticed this oftentimes, but like I work in a company where it's majority white males. It's that's just the way it ended up being. And that's just, I mean, who knows intentionally or unintentionally, but it is. And the thing is, it made me realize with the murder of George Floyd, that's when I realized like the way I viewed it is completely different than the way they viewed it. And again, people can have conversations within their households that are serious conversations. But when it came to work, I wasn't ready to just actually work and act like it was everything's normal. And let's let's talk about each other's weekends. My weekend was filled up seeing everybody that I knew that was black, that I that was friends with and whatnot, even people that are outside of my community that are black, that are hurting. I could not fathom just going there and saying, I did a, B, and C this weekend, and that's how they were. And I had a discussion with my manager, and I and it was a short discussion, but it was still a discussion, and I, I it was the first time that I ever put myself in an uncomfortable place in my workplace, but I was like, when do we start? If, if, if not now, then when? If when you see somebody just right. murdered on TV like that, when do you start these conversations even in your workplace? Just because you are the minority doesn't mean that you can't have the majority of the conversation be able to say, hey, I'm not okay with how this person said so-and-so. And I think I feel like I keep talking about this because it just, still, still to this day, it's just mind-boggling how some people were unaffected with the mm-hmm. situation. I want to ask, how did you feel when you heard the news? Because obviously, you, you will talk about what you did and the action steps that you took, which were incredible. But in that moment, how did you truly feel? It's crazy because immediately I couldn't watch the video. Mm. Um, I remember seeing, I woke up Tuesday morning and the murder happened on Monday, but we didn't see it hit social media really until Tuesday morning. Or that's when I felt like the collective swell of response came up. And I remember feeling almost numb. Like, it, like, like almost in my head thinking like another one, like, and that's so scary. And I remember my letter, I talked about, we've been so desensitized to it because of the frequency, like our, it's, it's almost like we get so mad and then it feels like a month later, it's like, okay. And then back to life. And we'd be th- this frequency. And I was just, I almost didn't want to watch it. And I talk about that quite a bit because I knew it was going to be traumatic. Like I just, I haven't forgotten the other videos I've watched. I haven't, you know, like those, th- those things don't come out of your mind. You don't 
like when you're seeing your brother drive away at night, if it's a late hour, you're waiting for your dad to come home. Like those are the images that are going through your mind. And people don't understand that this psychological trauma that exists both in the moment, um, well, I guess in the moment is more of this acute stress, but like after it is this really traumatic experience. There's a psychological damage that happens when you're just like, wanting to get out of this moment of this fear that you have for your for your brothers or your anyone really close in your life and the women who have been murdered as well that we often overlook too so it was it was definitely this moment like I didn't want to watch it but I knew I had to like I knew I was going to eventually there was like a shortened version of it and there's like a longer version and I eventually watched the long version I was just like I cannot believe that somebody could do this it was it was like I I couldn't fathom that somebody could do like it just it couldn't I don't I don't know how to explain it now because it's it's astounding to me that like humanity or it was so lost in that moment that however this person was viewing George Floyd was so negatively that he felt like he could be on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That is absurd to me. Like nothing in me can ever fathom that. And it was watching and I was like, I, I just, I, and then I can't understand how anyone could ever excuse that behavior. Right. So the people who justify it or, or start to bring up excuses. And in my letter, I say, regardless of whatever the arrest was, there's no way in which we can talk about excusing that behavior. You just can't, right? Like even if he had arrested him and there's, then there's been the other videos I've seen surface where it seems like he was in the car and then taken out of the car. And so there's just these constant things where I'm like, how did it, like, why, 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 why? And so it's just been a, it was definitely a roller coaster of emotions watching it. I can't forget what I heard. I don't think anyone's ever going to be forgetting what they heard. I think the moment he like cried out to his mother, like broke my heart, just knowing of like, like you think about your mom immediately. Um, but also the fact that like in that moment, all he, he legitimately just like wanted it to stop so badly. And for somebody to go unconscious, what somebody has to go through for that. I don't, I could go on about this for the, it was so traumatic. I think just listening to, and the fact that that video had audio and you can hear the people saying, just please get off of him. Right. It got to a point where it was like, we are begging you just like, please stop whatever the arrest is for, whatever is going on. Just like, please get off his neck. Like, please, please, please. And like that just, it just breaks your heart watching the entire thing. I only watched it once and I hate that we even have to watch something like that. I hate that it has to be televised for people to actually care. And it's just, it was heartbreaking. And it was, I can't, even right now when CNN still, they don't play the video, but they'll have like a screenshot of the part. I can't look at that. I'm sorry, but I can't because I'm, it's disgusting to see a human life like that just being taken away so senselessly. And for that person to be able to get away with it. When you're sitting at home and you see that this is happening and then you find out that news outlets are also saying that this same cop is ordering Grubhub from his home. It's, that it just what makes you hell? so livid that that this is the justice system that we are currently operating against, not with. Like we are trying to operate against this and dismantle it. And people need to understand. Somebody said a man was. Um, we interviewed her as well, and she said such a great point. She's like, you have to realize that interaction between George Floyd and the officer. That was the end point. That wasn't the start of everything. That's the end point. That to be right. able to realize that that person was able to do that. There's something in his mind that the officer thought that I can get away with this. What is it? Let's dismantle that because the end point is the is the police officer putting his knee like that into George Floyd's neck. 
and it, it's what actually even scares me even more is the officer that is standing there and they're telling him like he's not breathing and he barely turns around to look and he's like he is I'm like did you even look at him no. right like you've made this did, nobody checks his pulse nobody goes okay hold on if, if you want to verify quote unquote that he's breathing you can see as he's gasping as he's saying like and then you in the video you can almost see the moment in which it seems like he goes limp like you mm-hmm. can see it almost happen and that is terrifying to me and then this officer why wouldn't you intervene like I, I just can't even understand how you can it and that's why I get scared of this conversation about bad apples or one individual because we have bystanderism right if it truly was one individual then somebody should be stepping in right somebody should be saying no Somebody should, the other cop in the car, the other people that they called to the scene, somebody should have came in and said, absolutely not. But if you're, if there's bystanders going on, something is saying that this, somebody's justifying actions here. Somebody's sticking up for, I guess, what they have already agreed are moral actions, but then are agreeing to it. And then when we don't see repercussions, that means you're accepting this. You're saying that what happened was okay. And then we see the counts of things that have happened in, w- people were putting up like the screenshots of what these officers had already done that had gone without, you know, any discipline, anything like that. And I say, what? <laughs> like to that, it's like, who, where's the oversight board? Who is looking into these departments? Who is allowing this to happen time and time again? And why is there no audit being done? Why isn't anyone going and saying, you have numerous counts where di- no discipline is had? At what job do you know? Imagine a doctor does something like that. There is absolutely no, like, let's have another conversation. Let's speak. Doctors are held to this crazy standard of like, okay, now you're done. That was it. You're stripped of your license, applying whatever yours. I don't even know how it works, but it's an immediate, like, no, absolutely not. And even if there's a warning the next time, it surely is over. How can you have this many counts go without discipline? And then we're like, please go into the streets to quote unquote, protect and serve. It makes you wonder, like, what did these people expect? What are these these captains of the police department and sergeants, what do they expect to happen? If I think it was like 17, maybe 17 complaints against this officer. What did you expect to happen? He's gotten away with it for so many years and had no repercussions, maybe a slap on, on the hand, but that's it. And it makes you wonder, are these officers being charged right now? And I know the answer, but are they being charged right now? Just because the nation is in an uproar, just because people are calling out for these charges to be, you know, done or I mean, I just I don't I don't see it had happening if that video wasn't on, if that video wasn't taken. And that's why this whole thing is the end point. That's why I think a lot of us see as the starting point with all these conversations that we've been having. We've educated ourselves so much and it's truly helpful to have these conversations from every community and whatnot. But it's I never looked at it. I always thought that that was just the starting point. Oh, no, a cop did that. But what made him do that? And it's, it's truly a disregard for human life, but a specific type of human life one that does not share the same skin color as yours. And I watched the documentary the 13th and I was blown away. Have you ever watched it? I watched when they see us and that I have, to I have watch not watched that like, yet in sections. I haven't watched 13th yet. It's on my list, but I, I, I have just mercy to read. Like th- there's just so much I want to read, but it's, it's knowing how much I'm going to go through and reading that. That's almost like, it, it's not just a book to me. It's not just a movie, right? This is reality. This is exactly. what we're living. This is our everyday lives. So it's very different to just be like, 
go read this or like go like watch this movie but no please tell me about 13th I, I would love to hear I yeah. think you would enjoy 13th from the conversations that we've had it's just it's a documentary that talks about specifically the 13th amendment so it's not like when they see us but it okay. talks in the background of why things are the way they are today and how they were able to disguise slavery from they, they said they abolished slavery right but they were able to disguise it and make it reborn again and revamped it to include it in today's modern day, basically. And for the decades, for obviously decades and hundreds of years. And it's just crazy how we are upholding this system and we don't even know. It. I'm not talking about the black community, but just even us, like the white passing community and whatnot and how we're upholding that and how we are basically just, I guess, like I told you, like a pawn. We're the pawn for the division between all these communities. And it's, it's horrific to know that we're part of this. But the thing is, at least... It, it's it's unfortunate that it took another life for us to finally all of us come together for the first time i feel like the whole world is finally deciding to all come together you have all 50 states you have 20 plus countries protesting but it's like at the same time i understand the importance of protesting but it's like now what are the action steps taken afterwards like what are we going to do after because the protesting raises awareness but what is going to really cause a change you know how do we go from raising awareness to causing change and this is something that you took it upon yourself and if you want to talk about that yeah, absolutely. So after after seeing the video and just I don't even know if I'd watched at the point by by the time I made the decision to write this letter, but I, I knew something had to be said. And I have tried or been in conversations with our campus police or with our university services and talked about what can we do to make our black students, our students of color feel safe on this campus. They are not comfortable with your presence. Let me be very clear. Mm -hmm. I've tried to have this conversation. I've talked about instances of which we saw police force and it was not at all welcomed and it was not received well. And I said, what do we do from here? And it was always these roundabout answers. And I'm like, but you're not giving me anything. And I remember one day they were like, well, what do you suggest? And I said, it is absolutely not my job to do that. It is your job to go into these communities, do the work, understand what they need. And I'm not saying go and enter space uninvited. There is a difference. There's you can understand and learn a community and educate yourself before entering. You do not need to physically go put yourself in their space, invade their space and go say, I'm learning your community. Absolutely not. That is not the way it's done. You were not welcomed there. You need to first understand before entering. So I said, it, the reason, and I said, it's not my job is one, I'm not, I, I don't want to go and say, this is exactly what students need without me talking to students first. You're putting me on the spot in a meeting and then you get to go back and say, well, Giles said, do this. Mm. Absolutely not. I will talk to students and I can gather that feedback and bring it back to you. But you should also ask if you can talk to students and go listen to them because student dollars, tuition dollars are what's paying you. So you have that responsibility to your quote unquote employer, be it the university, but the university runs on tuition dollars and state funding that you can go and talk to these students and understand this. Either way, I, I don't think it ever happened. I talk about in my letter that we're tired of donut hours. This was something where where police officers would set up these somewhat of stations and then have donuts be passed out. And that would be community engagement. Oh, that's what you meant by donut hours. I thought it just like, yeah, cops like donuts and they were just chilling at the cafes and eating. Donuts. It's so funny because everyone's asking me about that. And I'm like, that's fair. But I, I remember being like, I don't think that's effective at all. I don't know if I'm not comfortable with your presence. What makes you think I'm going to just come up to you and take a donut from you? Um, absolutely not. So that, Stuff like that was frustrating to me because I, this is the thing. 
I said, if you truly want to see safety has less to do with the objective measure of offense or we are gated and more to do with the idea of trust, right? Safety is a feeling. So if you're going to build this trust, if that's truly what you want to do, that has to look different than what you've been doing for the past however many years the UMPD has been operation. I actually don't know. So that was something that I, I wanted to see. But more than that, I said, at this point, a murder has happened. I know we have contracts with this police department. I know I've seen this police department on campus. Our campus is embedded within Minneapolis. But in terms of the times that the university can make a conscious decision on what police department to work with, by no means do I want to see a Minneapolis police officer on this campus. And that was just, I, I had full stop, final. I don't really have anything to add. I don't want to see them here, period. And that was because you cannot tell me that murdering a man and stepping on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds when it was based on the assumption that he had a counterfeit $20 bill, you want to tell me that those values align with our university, then you are lying to me when you have a diversity statement on your website. Absolutely a lie. So I said, there's no way a land grant public university that is funded by students and the state that was meant to give back to these communities with a whole board policy on equality and racial discrimination and such things, then we're going to go partner with a department that has trending history of police brutality towards the black community. Absolutely not. Not when I'm in office as student body president, am I going to be okay with that? And so that's why we asked. I, I said, absolutely not. I said, I'm sending out this letter tonight. I'm not waiting for things to come down. I'm not waiting for tomorrow morning. I'm not, we've been waiting for 400 years. We've been waiting. Every day we've been waiting. I've been waiting to have a conversation. I've been waiting for action. I've been waiting for someone to care. It got to a point where, you know what? I care. We are the people we've been waiting for. We are the people that can lead this movement. We are the youth that are going to rise up and drive this change in so many different facets. And that's just what needs to happen. And I, I remember writing it and I talked to many different people that helped me in terms of fact checking and making sure history is right. But it's so important that people understood that like, the Minneapolis, like that 13.2, they were killing black men or black people at 13.2 times the rate of yes. white people. That is crazy. Like when you read that statistic, I don't know how you can't be alarmed. I don't know how that. And, and sometimes I think back and I'm like, how many people do we not know about? I've thought about that many times and not just in Minneapolis, but all over the, the United States, all over the world. How many people do we not know about? How many people's names do we not know? How many people's names have we not said? And I, I said, no more. I don't want these cops on our campus. I don't want to be okay. And, and I understand, and people have mentioned this quite a few times, our university is open in the sense that there's not like a a very strict, like this is University of Minnesota and then this is Minneapolis. And that's why my letter, I say, I have no jurisdiction over the Minneapolis Police Department's actions. Absolutely not. I don't get to decide how they operate. That is not my jurisdiction. That's okay. And, in, and a lot of people have also asked me, what happens if something is reported? And I've said, again, in my letter, I say, barring reporting structures, because since somebody called dispatch, it's not them to say, like, if you're not... If you're not UMNPD police, don't call. Like, I'm not saying that either, right? If there's an emergency and they feel as if they're safe with the police and that's the best action, so be it. What I am saying, though, when our university has direct action to make and has a conscious decision to make of who to use for police department, the Minneapolis Police Department should not be called.
can I snap my fingers like 10 million times? Because <laughs> everything you said was so powerful. Like that was so powerful in every aspect because even when I went to college, like you don't, you subconsciously don't look at that. But again, it's because I'm non-black. I don't, that's not the first thing that's on my radar. That's not the first thing that I don't, I, I never felt safe around police. I just truly didn't. But when I say safe, I don't mean that I ever felt like they were going to kill me because again, I've never faced that. You have to understand, you have to hear out the community that's being affected the most. So it's like, how are you as a college, like, and I'm not attacking only your college, there's a lot of college campuses. How can you have certain values set in place, but then also operate with people that do not have the, have these same values? You have to operate with people who have the same values as you. And we talk about diversity. What does diversity mean? We don't need token tokenism within our schools, within our workplaces or not. We need to go beyond that. Representation matters, but I'm not just saying just visually, what are you doing behind the scenes that, that right. it matters? What is but the I, action? I, what is the action? And I think that's so powerful and I think it's really powerful in the fact that you did not wait. The thing is we do, we're used to people waiting, thinking about this, let things settle down. Let's see what they decide to do as in they, the others, people that are not being the ones that are affected. So it's like, it's so powerful. What did you expect for the school's response to be? Obviously we, you had the school's response, but this is the first time that you're doing this, but what did you expect them to respond with? Did you even expect a response? That's a great question. Oh, one, I, I also want to know, I, I, worked with my communications director and we talked a little bit about consultation because I do think consultation is important. And when you're in a position of power, you can make decisions without consultation. You can call the shots. But I do think it's important to get the input of board members and other Congress members who also have that same stake in student advocacy. And I said, at the end of the day, if you're really in this for to be a student advocate, then this letter should be of no issue to you. In fact, it should only make sense, right? And so I brought this before our board and that evening before I posted and they unanimously supported me to post it. So I want to make sure that's out there that I did talk with my board. I got their approval. And then the following day, I gave the opportunity, our speaker forum gave our entire foreign body the opportunity to also sign on and they also signed on to the letter. So I did have unanimous support from my organization, from the executive board side, and then our foreign board signed on as well. Now, in terms of my what I was expecting of the university response. One, I sent that letter on 100% faith in God. There is no way, I, I don't know how many students have ever sent a letter and said, I need a response within 24 hours and publicly sent it out and cited media. Um, that was big. It was very big, it was very bold, but I actually wasn't scared until after the fact. I actually was just ready to go. I remember as soon as I got approval from my board, I was talking to my communications director my, in our secret form. I said, how soon can we post this? Like I'm kind of like I'm itching to put I, I, I people need to know we're not letting this pass by. This is 20 minutes away from our campus. We are not ignoring this. We are not treating this as a one-off. We are going to say something and we're going to say something immediately. I'm not waiting for approval from 15 different check marks. I've gotten the approval of the student advocates that matter. And in terms of the student advocates that are sitting here and are in these positions ready to advocate. And I've also gotten uh, we've got, we're going to get the approval of our foreign body, hopefully. So I was ready to go. And I remember sitting there after and being like, I have a really good relationship with President Gable. I nice. just don't know how this is going to go with everyone else. Uh -huh. I, I did trust President Gable and I knew she was going to respond with something. I didn't know what we were going to get. We've had a great relationship. She's only been at our university for about a year now. Oh, wow. um, she made a year in July, actually. Um, so I, we've had a good relationship for the time that she's been here, but I was just ready to really talk about how exactly 
do we move from here? And I was ready to hear that she was ready to take that action and value those same things that are on our university website, that are in board policy. And I think that needed to be said from the university and that needed to be said from admin that yes, we agree, this is just not okay. And really show those communities that they're actually valued, that they're actually considered part of the human community and their safety is just as serious. And people often talk about like, okay, well now, like, what if we feel less safe? And he said, do you know how many students have never felt safe? Do you know how many students have walked around and there is no safety measure but themselves? There are students who do not call 911 in a case of an emergency. Like, really think about that. There are students who do not call a system in which they pay taxes to, to help and protect them in the case because they're afraid they're actually going to be a victim of that. Wow. Like, if you, if, when you bring it back to that, it's just like, how, how can you not make a response? How can you not protect these students? So... I understand higher ed in itself moves a lot slower in the world. Like there's always a committee here or a charge here and this, that, and the third. So I really didn't know how it was going to go. Um, I knew there was conversations that had to be had. I wasn't in any of them, <laughs> but I, I, I was very happy to know. And we got a response in another 24 hours of adjusting ties in which we saw two um, very big things kind of be cut off immediately. Um, and that was so important. That message was so important. Obviously the whole severing of ties has not happened, but President Gable has been active in saying, we are still working on this. We're still looking into this matter. It's not over. Conversations left we had, but the fact that an immediate action was made in under 24 hours was extremely impressive. Yeah, and that's the importance of putting these higher-ups under pressure. Like, I'm giving you those 24 hours. You make a decision. I'm not going to wait on this. Like, I invited the media. I'm taking action because no one else thought of taking action when all of those innocent Black men have died and previously. Exactly. So now what's the next step? Are you guys just waiting to see what the adjustments will be or... I like how she already made the two adjustments, which is like no police presence at large, like concerts and whatnot, large yeah, events. Large events and sporting events, which yeah. is huge. Yeah. And then the other one was the canine bombing units. So the, the two of those. Um, what, what's next is one complete sever of the ties, of course. Yeah. Um, that's very important. And then we have to look into our own police department. Absolutely, without a doubt. We have our own independent police department on our campus. We still have to look into that police department. And there's been amazing student advocates that have been working towards exactly how they would like that to look like. And meetings have been set up with our president. Meetings have been set up with, um, are hoping to set up with our with our chief as well to discuss what that looks like. Because yes, Minneapolis police is off our campus, but we still have a whole internal police department that also has to be looked into and they do not get a pass. Absolutely not. And that's a great point because you can't put this all on one person. You sent that letter, but you knew that you had organizations that were going to back you up, other fellow students who agree with you that they do feel safe. And this is why this is a huge effort on everybody. If we're trying to make change in anything, in any aspect, it's power in numbers. And that is so true that we need to, we always have to stay together especially for causes like this and i think people think that defunding the police is a radical idea or even removing police presence in one is a radical idea but i've seen somewhere online they're like you know what's really a radical idea that's already been implemented is the defunding of the education system there are schools that do not have the proper amount of teachers counselors mentors and everything and resources even lunch we're from chicago we had the cps schools strike like what was it It was they striked uh, in the fall because they couldn't they weren't getting paid because there was no money yet in chicago the cpd gets 33 million dollars a 
year. Yeah, see, that's, that's a lot of so money. Why, people go crazy about defunding the police, but your edu- our education system is being defunded. How do we feel about that? Crickets. Nobody says anything. Yeah. Let's make sure our budgets kind of make sense. Let's give our schools an actual better budget than what we're giving the budget of, of um, you know, whatever, the local Yeah, because I forgot the numbers, the specific numbers. That there was millions of dollars that were set aside for lawsuits against officers. There were millions of dollars uh, set aside for racial discrimination against uh, citizens, you know, lawsuits that they can protect the officers. All that money that shouldn't even be allocated in their funds. That's the money that should be put back into the community to help better the communities, especially low-income communities. And yeah, we actually previously talked about the school-to-prison pipeline before on our podcast mm-hmm. with an educator, and she works in the black community. Things that that she said were profound, and it's like it's very, very saddening how like every solution to every student's problem is calling the police. And I mean, you're just introducing them to the prison system. You're introducing them to, instead of to mental health resources or helping them financially. We're just specific. asking them, hey, what's up? Yeah, it's just basically, we're just sending them off into the prison system and on school buses. It's it's really sad. I want to ask you how, like, this is a very broad question, but maybe because you're in the school campus and whatnot, but how does the youth political engagement compare with overall political engagement? How important is it to become active when we are in our schools and our college campuses and whatnot? That's a good question. First, I want to touch on education just a bit, because that is like my passion in life um, in terms of just like what I love. I, there's a documentary that was made about Lucy Lane Elementary School here in North Minneapolis. It's called Love Them First. It's on YouTube. If you have a chance, I would highly recommend it. What is important here to note, one, is quote unquote behavioral issues or quote unquote like disciplinary actions because aggressive behavior these words that we use around when a student quote unquote acts out it's it's amazing to me because a lot of the times it's like the student is generally trying to ask for something and what they're asking for is sometimes just what they're not maybe getting somewhere else and they're hoping to come to school and have somebody look them in the eye and just see them for who they are as a student as a person as a child not as a criminal not as an aggressor not as somebody who is there to ruin anything but truly as somebody who's looking to learn and these sort of narratives are not injected into them in high school this starts in elementary school, which is why I think it is so important that a lot of the efforts we are focusing on bettering the lives of students or how students are treated starts in elementary school. It starts with those K through five teachers that have this opportunity to work with students as their brains are still developing, as they're still figuring out what a norm is, as they're still pushing boundaries and seeing where they fit. When you start to tell children things like, please don't have such aggressive behavior, or you start to tell them, oh, your name is really hard to pronounce. Or, oh, was your mom able not to come today because of work? When you start to really project these stereotypes on them, they start to think they fit them. They start to believe that's supposed to be who they, like they're supposed to be what you are telling them. And so when you start to see these pattern behaviors, then you start to confirm these biases in telling them, don't do this because you might end up like this. Then they start to think they are going to end up like this because you've told them that is where they're supposed to be. And then we get overly shocked at the end of the day when the school to prison pipeline works because the very educators that say they're trying to prevent it actually are acting as catalysts towards this system. And it scares me because educators feel like they 
they're they're not supposed to be in this work. This this like it's not their job to be allies. And, and to that I say, how are you an educator then? If you cannot look at every student and say, I'm going to treat you equitably, not equally, equitably, then there is an issue, right? How do you look at a student and say, is there something going on at home? Let's talk about that first. You cannot come into a classroom and learn if you feel as if you're not having this situation at home. What resources? Why don't we have more social workers in school? Why are mental health counselors being cut, right? But then we want to add police. We want to add these objective safety measures. Why aren't we talking to students? Why aren't we saying, instead of you having this monthly checkup with your principal, go talk to a social worker. Let's discuss what's going on so you can be a learner, right? And so- it, it frustrates me when we talk about, especially because we talk about it in high school, these mechanisms and these things are put in place so early on. And I'm not saying I've done all this research and I have educational backing or anything to come and tell you like what a PhD student might have or what somebody else might have. But from what I've learned and what I've observed is so much of this starts when they're so young and what we tell them when they're young. When we talk about affirmations, telling a student that you can do it or you can excel or you are meant to be at the top or you just have to keep trying, teaching them not to give up. Those are the type of things we need to be telling our students. We need to stop this business of just putting people into groups of accelerated, non-accelerated. So what if I didn't get it the first time? What are you telling me that I need to get everything the first time in life? That's not realistic. So, okay, I failed three times. What about the fourth time? What are educators doing to make sure these students are still trying? Okay, so you get a child in third grade that was behind in second grade reading. Instead of us working towards to make sure they catch up, it's almost like we agree, well, it looks like this is just where you're going to be. We punish them. We punish them for right. being maybe and a little now bit. We're yeah. mad at them. Yeah. And then we tell them that they're defined by this test score for the rest of their academic career. So now that you, I just can't imagine how many students carry these test scores or carry these measures that they've been given all the way up until high school. And then we try to do like ACT prep with them. And then we start to like college possible. And I'm not saying these programs are bad necessarily, but they're too late. To me, they're too late, at least. I think these things need to be happening way before. And and it hurts me because I look at these students and I can tell it's it's no fault of your own that somebody else told you where you were supposed to be. And unfortunately, you believe them. And I and I just want to go up and be like, absolutely not. Do not let anyone ever defy that for you. You have the, the utmost potential. It's up to you to live up to it. They did not just saying it's on the backs of the educators, but what they tell them and these narratives that they give them is so important. And it's just, I don't know, I could go on a rant for education for hours, but I, I truly want, especially students, black students, black women, like I look at them and I'm like, please do not let anybody ever tell you that. Or people being like, well, I'm just stupid. No, 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 no. You just didn't get it the first time. And that's perfectly fine. That is, we have to normalize that. And then they look at their peers who they feel as if are getting it the first time. When and oftentimes they're not either, but somebody else is telling them or they have somebody at home who's working with exactly. them. And some students don't have that opportunity. So it's the educator's responsibility, in my opinion, to say, let's see here. Which is why I honestly think there's champions in the education system who are often overlooked. I had champions in my life. I had educators who cared, but and but I get so frustrated because then I see how underpaid they are. And I'm like, why does this even make sense? Uh, right? Like we're, we're talking about transforming a system. And I really do believe if we worked on education, so many things would be different, but then we, our educators are so underpaid. 
my sister's an educator. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, make it make sense for real. Because like my sister literally, she's like, I can't look at my classroom as one whole. And that's true. You have to teach each student, student by student. But at the same time, she's like, we don't have the resources, like the resources that you need or the extra help that these students need. Because maybe the way a teacher is teaching is not going to fit a certain student. And that certain student is going to think that I'm not getting it. I'm not smart. I'm not, st-. you're a quickly labeled. And you just, you lose this momentum and you continue to lose this momentum. And then what does our school system do? They slowly kind of inch them towards the prison pipeline. When they feel like they're not smart, it equates with bad behavior as well. Like that, it's almost like we equate intelligence with behavioralism as well. And like, oh, okay, if you're not intelligent, you must be not, you know, there's just so much into it. And like you said, we can go hours about that, but it's super important. There are incredible teachers out there. And even our lesson plans and the way our school system, what they teach, like, are we really truly preparing the youth for the real world? Because I was not prepared. That's why the people say, well, welcome to the real world world i should have been welcome to the real world when i was young like there are ways action steps that you can take to teach these students to let them know what they should prepare for you know what i mean who's teaching about who's teaching about redlining right who is teaching these students where to purchase a home so you don't get an insane interest rate who is teaching them about deceptive practices within the renting industry who is talking to them about how to properly invest who's telling them how much to actually put in your you know into your retirement fund right away you get your first job who is teaching them how to save who is telling them about budgets nobody Nobody. right so then we we talk about this spending power that we have as black people and we talk about this money but it's it scares me because then we don't also say here's financial literacy here's how we start investing in our own mutual funds how do we how do we go into black owned businesses and that's where we invest how do we put money back into our own community right and so i when you were talking about you weren't prepared yeah because no one's sitting there and telling us this is how you take out a mortgage what is a mortgage nobody is saying this is what credit is no one is saying take out a credit card and buy one thing for $10 and just start to build longevity nobody is talking about that and so students come out and they're like okay, well, I want to buy a home, I want to buy a car, or they buy a car and they get this crazy interest rate, or they can't make the payments. And then, you know, they tack on credit card debt, and then they ruin their credit score. So then later in life, they can't buy a home. And then they're pushed into housing. And then we have redlining. And then it's, it's so slick. It's like so cyclical. And this is when we talk about institutionalized racism. This is what I want people to understand. It is not just a blatant act of saying, I do not like a black person or I don't. It's institutional. It is embedded in our exact practices. And people have to start to realize is it's not just in the education system. It's not just in the housing industry. It is everywhere. It is in every part of our, our, how we operate as a system. And it's so scary to me because it's like, then how do you, we talk about like, how do I set you up to succeed? Right. And people are just like, well, just go to school and do this, that, and the third. Absolutely not. That is not how it works. Nope. Right. I, people leave school and are still in debt, right. Because no one told them about loans. Nobody explained to them how high these interest payments were. Nobody told them that the minute they graduate, that Sally Mae would be at their door. Right. No, nobody's talking about this. And so then students are, are left in these positions where they're like, what do I even do next? And it's just like, I, I talk about being at it as a university student body president and for the undergrads and saying, how do I make this a university where somebody can come here and actually say, I am set up to go and transform. I'm set up to go and say, I can be in a better socioeconomic status, or I'm set up to say, I can 
start to shift my own generation in my family. I can move myself up and then slowly start to build my family's wealth. Like how, if we're not putting our students in a place where they can do that to create better citizens of society, not only for society itself, but for themselves, then are we really doing our job as educators in higher ed? And that's what I say all the time. If I can't come here and move, if I, if I, if I came in and I end the same way, what happened in these four years, right? At the end of the institutions were meant to educate students. That is your main priority. That is your biggest stakeholder group. Like that is it. Like students, everything you do, if there's not a student at the end of it, then let's talk about why you're doing it. Like if somebody isn't saying why to you every time, why, why, and how does this benefit students, then we need to be justified. Oh my gosh. Amen to all of that for real, because I, it's, it's now taking me that I'm reflecting back on my schooling and I'm like, I was not prepared for nothing at all. It's almost like you're set up for failure. Like I don't want to take all educators and that, but it's, it's, it's a school system. It's just like, you're almost set up for failure. And again, mind you, I'm still privileged because I'm not even black. So there's just so many things that are even tacked against black people that are within the communities and they're trying to thrive and whatnot and everything. But there's just so much, even when they want to take out mortgages and when they want to take out loans, that's just, they already know what they're in for because this is just what they were taught from when they were young, that everything is against them. It's horrible. It's really horrible. The system that we're upholding, that we're trying, it's just, it's, I, I want to talk about how important it is because right now you're using your voice. How important is it to not underestimate your voice and the power? Power of your voice yeah. because you are saying all these incredible things and you're going to inspire so many people but there's probably so many others out there that also have so much to say but we tend to underestimate ourselves but where did you find this confidence and this need to be able to finally speak out and not stay muted about what's going on and what you're seeing that is so fair first i want to say like there's so many champions in education and people that are really doing the work in terms of how like important it is to not underestimate student voice. The way you serve a community is by understanding what the community needs, right? We talk, there's this story that we've, I, I read about, and this man went to um, Africa and started planting some sort of plant and was just so active. And he thought he was really giving jobs to people and he was doing a great job. And eventually the hippos came and ate all the plants. And the reason that the locals knew that was going to happen, right? Like they were yeah. aware of what vegetation would grow. There is going to happen. But he came in thinking he knew what that community needed. He came in thinking, right? We talk about this somewhat of a saviorist attitude. And I'm in some ways, exactly what it is. A saviorist attitude of like, I know what you need. I'm going to come in. I got you. I'm going to fix it all. Like very coming in and saying what you need. What we need to do is listen to the students who are exactly telling you what's going on. Students have no, they are, they are paying tuition dollars. And when you're paying for a service, you're going to be very vocal about what you want that service to look like. Education is a service. Let's be very clear, nonprofit or not, it's a service and we're paying for it. So students are sitting here and saying, this is what we want instead. And then we have the educators who are like, well, when I was back in college or when I was here, like, this is what I think we needed. That is why student voice is so important. We are here right now and we're doing our best to not only anticipate our needs, but the incoming classes needs, right? And as administrators get farther and farther away, those needs are changing. 30 years ago, the conversation about mental health or the idea of having multiple mental health counselors wasn't really a thing. Does that mean mental health was absent? Absolutely not. Does that mean that people were not listening to students? That could very well be the reason. We could have been ignoring exactly what was going on because the norm was to shove it under the rug. The norm was to suck it up, right? People didn't want to talk about it. And then we see now more than ever that it, it is an absolute necessity. 
we talk about coming back from COVID and people haven't even realized the loss that existed from the spring, from March, and people are going to have to deal with that. We're going to then have to deal with the psychological effects of this trauma of protesting. We're going to have to deal with these images that our children are seeing, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about six, seven, eight-year-olds having to view these very traumatic images that are now embedded in their mind. We're talking about having to have the conversation with 11 and 12 year olds about what does this look like? And we tend to underestimate the capacity or the intelligence of young children. They are taking in this media just as much as we are. 100%. And so five, 10 years when they're in college, somebody else needs to listen to them about what their needs are going to be because of what's going to happen. And I think what gave me the confidence, one is God. There's nothing I think I've ever done or been able to execute without his help. I talk about that a lot because I don't think me coming into the presidency at a time like this, you can't tell me that's not a divine appointment. You yes. can't tell me you can't tell me that that was happenstance. So I, I think that came from that. And then from that, I knew that if I was speaking on behalf of people, if I was able to advocate for the ones that are often unheard, that I was doing my job and that's what God wants me to do. I think my mom talks a lot about like, you've been given this gift of speech or you've given this gift where like, even from a young age, I love talking in front of groups of people. I was like, you, you just never were fearful of it. Like that, you don't understand how much of a gift that is. You have to use that. Like that is what you were meant for. And I remember early on, I tried to be in leadership in elementary school and I remember there's this girl that they were like basically it was like what why would you get voted in over her and I didn't I didn't get voted in again in middle school every year I'd probably feel counsel and just wouldn't get it I remember in high school I was like this is finally my chance I'm gonna do it freshman year I um ran didn't get it sophomore year ran didn't get it and I said you know what there's a one there's a reason I'm not getting yes. this <laughs> don't know why but two, there's a reason I keep trying. And I remember I talked to my sister and her um, friend was the president of student council. And I said, can I just be a non-voting member? I'm not like, I understand I wasn't elected. That's fine. But I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. And she was like, absolutely. And then I ran for vice president and I was a, and I was a vice president my junior year. And then I was president my senior year. And I said, there's a reason I'm supposed to be doing this. And I think that this this ability to be able to speak on behalf of people and empathize with seeing from my parents and how humble they were and how many times that we, they were so giving to other people and how many times that they were able to talk with other people and engage with other people and empathize and be willing to give and give and give. My mom would spend hours cooking for other people or immediately trying to help other people. And that to me was so powerful to see as such a young girl right? There's many times I was sharing a room or there's many times we'd be, my mom would be like, oh, nope, come on, we're cooking for this thing or we need to take this here or a family member's passed away. We need to make this and take it there. There's always this humble giving that was going on in my family. And so understanding people's backgrounds and treating people as like, you know, my mom was always like, we're all God's children, yes. right? God does see you as better or him as better, right? That's why I always say I have no ill intent towards anyone. I do not see white people like, I hate you. Absolutely not. There's nothing there. What and, and then there's this Bible verse in Luke that talks about like, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And I think about this all the time with the people who are so aggressive and are in Facebook comments and saying negative things and are justifying this murder. And I almost have to be like, for my own sanity, I have to forgive you because I have no strength to sit here and argue or no strength to pay attention to that and rather speak on behalf of those who need it. And that's why I think 
even activism and political activism, politics affects us all. Whether or not we like it, whether or not we choose to engage to whatever extent, it affects us all. So the importance of youth understanding this is the sooner you can recognize the effects, the sooner you can voice, the sooner we can make change. We talk about the power of millennials in the voting system. We talk about the power of Gen Z and those different things. It is so important to note that being politically active is our civic duty and understanding and holding our elective officials to high accountability levels is the way we see change. The people who are making the decisions on George Floyd's murder and the conviction and the arrest right now are elected officials. These are people we put into office, right? So when we come around this cycle in November, I really want people to think back to this moment when these elected officials were making these decisions, when these people were choosing to make, and being in office, is such a privilege. It is a God-given privilege to be able to speak on behalf of people. And I wish you understood that it's not just about the face. It's not just about having the name. You are being given this large purpose and this large ability to speak. Use it wisely. Use it to the benefit of people. Understand the underserved. But I absolutely think people have to get active. And if you believe it is your purpose to serve, if you in your heart understand that you should be doing this, keep trying. I tell all the time to young students, just keep at it. It doesn't matter how many times you hear a no. It doesn't matter how many times people think it's not for you. If you believe it is your God-given purpose or God has called you to it and you believe that is what you're supposed to be doing, go after it. You know, we talk about when Lupita talked about like your dreams are valid. Your dreams are so valid. Do not let anybody find what you're supposed to be doing, tell you what the norm is or tell you typically how many women enter this field. That doesn't matter. I'm in finance. My classrooms do not look like me. I can assure you of that. So it, it does not matter. You go after it because you can. You can do it. It bothers me so much when I hear people say like, oh, but I'm not political. And it's like, if you live in this world, if you live in this country, if you're in existence, you are political. Like there are things that bother you that you want change. And I think as, I mean, I, I your mom is an angel for encouraging you to use your voice because I think as little kids, we need to do that more. We need to encourage them. Hey, if you don't like this, speak up and say something. My my uh, station interviewed a seven-year-old boy at a protest yesterday uh. and the boy was crying and he goes, I just want peace on the streets. I just want everyone to be peaceful and I don't want anyone dying. And the mom was like, yeah, I encourage him to say what he's feeling. And I think that is the most powerful thing because he's going to grow up knowing that his voice is a tool that he can use to better the world. Yeah, it also starts in the homes, like to not also muffle down your exactly. children's voices and whatnot. And let them, I think a lot of parents also fear for the safety of their kids. And I think that's also another discussion in itself to be able to, you know, understand like, the thing is change happens from action and i know sometimes we don't want our own kids to be out there on their front lines but sometimes it's it's who the world needs to hear are the kids exactly because us adults our minds there's just so much taking up our headspace that we need a kid that is so innocent that is looking at the world from their own eyes and their own perspective right. to tell us like what the heck are you guys doing you know what i mean yeah. even somebody as young as you Jaya, like that's amazing that you were able to write this letter and you knew that it needs to be done now and you knew it was urgent and it's amazing how right away adjustments were made and that's all it takes sometimes sometimes it takes some more yeah yeah and even to your point about children and I mean what I think about so much though is for the white mom who can shield her child from this that's a privilege the black mom has to sit down her son and tell them I watched this video where this mom told her son to say put your hands up say that you have nothing that you have to harm them that is a six seven year old child that is a child 
child and they don't get to shield their children. When people look at, yes, the majority have been on Anbrakfin who are adults, there has been children though. And if you look back to the Children's March, where it was just children, right? People forget about that the Children's March happened and they were fighting for civil rights. And you can talk about what happened in the South when they were literally taking hoses and spraying children, right? And these were the police doing, these were children, school-age children, some of the youngest age of four or five, right? So children can, you, I, I have nothing to tell a in terms of how you parent, that is your decision. But I want us to also be aware of and recognize that one mother has a privilege over another. One father has a privilege over another on what they get to show their child of what is going on. That's incredible. Because, I mean, we've seen Trayvon Martin. We've seen Tamir Rice. These are, in my eyes, still children. Regardless if they were teenagers or not, they're still children. Regardless if they were in the park by themselves or walking alone, they're still children. And for them to have come face to face with such monsters, it's truly sad because they should have never, ever come to that. It should never come to that point. So, yes, these conversations do need to happen. But there's a huge difference in these conversations. And we have to understand that. And that's a privilege in itself. But as a white mom to be able to realize that I don't have to teach my kids to, you know, like a cop might kill you just for the color of your skin. Do something about that. Realize that there are other people that have to have these uncomfortable conversations with their kids. If you love your child, you should still love the children of other people. Like we're all humans. We truly are. And you know, it's, and I don't want people to say to see beyond color. No, we should be able to see each other's colors. Like if you're colorblind, then you have a different problem. You need to go to your eye doctor because you're devaluing. Yeah. You're devaluing a human being by saying that I don't see your color. You're stripping them, stripping them away from one part of their identity. You know, I actually, I've said this earlier. I, would I can't even imagine what it's like to be a, a black mother right now of, of black kids because not only are you teaching them that they can't do the basic things that their white counterparts can do they can't wear a hoodie when they're outside you know they can't have their hood up they can't have their hands in their pockets they can't the basic things that I think we take for granted the, these moms have to take every single time they leave the house they have to teach them hey remember don't do this don't do this keep your hands in the air if anyone stops you like those things are traumatizing. And as a kid, a 13, 14 year old kid leaving the house, that stays with you. Is there anything else you want to leave off on, Jael? Because I feel like you've covered all these points and so inspiring. And I hope a lot of young kids are inspired because I feel like for me, I missed that ball. I, I wish I took advantage of all these organizations when I was in school and, and whatnot. But it's, it's it's like you said, it's so nice to see people now doing this. People your age and much younger doing this. Uh, online activism, youth activism within their schools, whatever it is, it's, it's beautiful. And everybody's doing their own part. Is there anything else you want to advise people on or give advice or just, you know, anything else that's on your mind? What I will say is to, to be silent is to be complicit right? Allyship is so important. And, and we, you know, the words of Dr. Martin always really resonate here with me about like, we, we remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So to my friends, did I see that I've been going to school with for years, be silent on this. What you are telling me is very telling of the character that you have and how you value me as a person. So I want to make sure to people who are posting on social media, who are outraged on Instagram. Also be outraged in your action. Be outraged in your letter to your congressman. Be outraged in how you protest. Be outraged when you're talking to your family members who don't see issue with this. Be outraged when you are continuously to operate in the world and recognize your privilege. Do not just be outraged with a post. 
And I love the fact that social media has become this transformative way of which we communicate and get this across. But make no mistake, that is not where it stops. We can't just post on social media and then go back to our lives. And we've seen these videos of people who are at protests and feet away, people are just taking like happy-go-lucky photos. And I'm like out of my mind, like, you know, like how, how can you even fathom that? And I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but where's also the respect given? How do we understand that like, Where's the respect given? Where do we notice those things? So I want to make sure people who are engaging in allyship, truthfully, thank you. And to those who are saying they are, but are just posting on social media, it has to go further than that. It really does. And to firms and corporations who are now releasing these statements, and I said this on my Twitter, we will be waiting to see these auditing statements and these financial statements in FY21 of all these dollars that you said were going to be directed towards the Black community. It is very easy right now to monetize off of your efforts, to monetize off of your letter, right? Because people say, oh, they support Black people. I'm going to go now shop. That is monetary gain. I am waiting to see these financial statements in FY21 that say, these are the X amount of dollars we promised. This is what we gave over and above our diversity budgets, right? These companies already have these budgets that exist. If you just reallocated the money and said, now it's going towards Black people, you didn't really change much, right? Like you just announced a decision. I want to see what happened over and above the already budgets that existed. And I think it's a it's a bold promise to make this in the middle of a pandemic when people don't know what their financial security is. So I appreciate the gesture. What it has to be backed by, though, is action, right? Like, I want to see something out of this. And the last thing I'll say is, for people who are scared about being politically I don't even consider myself this, like, guru on politics. <laughs> I, have, I have people in student government that will sit there and, like, really school me on what's going on in politics. I'm like, wow, okay, this is clearly a jam and this is where you do well. It's not about that. It's not about everybody has a different talent and some might understand the system better than you do in terms of politics or people might understand the electoral vote or understand how this senator does this or this representative does this, but it is your civic duty to understand it so you are an educated voter. I think We often sit there and we say, well, I'm just going to vote for this person. I'm just going to vote for this person. That is your right to vote for whomever. But please be an educated voter. And if you can say that I'm voting with this candidate with integrity, fine. But please do not go to the polls and ignore a vote. And people, please do not stay home. You have given up your vote. You have literally given up your vote when you do that. You are literally saying whoever wins, that's where your vote went. Or you are okay with whoever Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so I really want people to remember that. And lastly, just pray for your communities. I think a lot of what's going on, the pain that is seeping in our communities right now, the pain that people feel, we're going to feel this for a long time. The trauma that we're experiencing now is not 100% recognized. We are still in the middle of a global pandemic, which we have still not even completely wrapped our heads around. So pray for those around you and be willing to show grace. Show grace to the people at work. Show grace to your family members. Help the elderly who probably can't be outside right now. Who need somebody to shop for them. Help the people who are in the streets. Ask your friends what you can do for them. But also take care of yourself. I have so many friends that have been like, Jow, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have to break, slow down. And that's what you need. You need the people that care about you and are going to tell you to slow down. And remember just to have humanity. My father has told me, he said, Jal, in, in everything you do, the way we've raised you all as children is to have humanity. 
you don't revenge. I'm not looking for revenge. You don't backstab. You don't do that. You just need to have humanity and we can forgive and we can have humanity because of God's grace. So I want you to show that to other people. And I want people to have humanity. And I feel like that's truly what we've lost sight of. And it's so sad to see, but we can get back there. We can reimagine a society. We can imagine a society that has different safety measures that are not so objective that it hurts people. We can have a society where we can walk around in the streets as black people and not feel as if we are being judged based on the color of our skin. We can have a society where children will go to school and feel as if their education is truly bettering their lives. We can have a society where people can live where they want to live and we aren't going to have highways come through their communities and destroy them. We can have a society where we don't take people's land and we don't speak on it. We can have a society where people understand history as totality of history and not just the parts we want to highlight in textbooks. And that's all possible, but it really starts with people reimagining a different society and being having that true humanity. Oh my God. It's, it's like going beyond message. intent and making impact. And that was beautiful. Everything that you just said, your parents honestly raised such an incredible and astounding woman. I, we're both inspired, like beyond inspired because it really, that's what we need. We need people to push us and it's like, we should push ourselves, but it's just, it's voices like yours that need to be heard. They need to be amplified, that are urgent, that I I love the way you think because it's not about revenge. It's what changes can we make? And it is about humanity. We are humans. How can we be there for one another? How can we not just say, well, they're from that community. I'm not from that community, so I'm not going to worry. Guess what? Each community has its day. It's going to have its day. And I hate to say that, but... As a minority, you know we know this. We know this. So it's like let's stand firmly together. Let's be there for one another. And I, I think it's so. And I have so much faith in our youth. So much faith in our youth. And if it's it's led by people like you, Jarl, I'm just I'm really. I know. Thank you. Yeah. And it, it's just it's incredible. And I I think that yeah. A lot, I feel like these protests. You know, regardless, looters or not. And I hate talking about that because I feel like you have no right to tell somebody how they can showcase their anger. You're 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 you've never experienced an ounce of what they've gone through but i want to talk about the protests the fact that i want to end it on this that it's it's so powerful to know that we are not desensitized to what's going on you said there's a high frequency but thank god we're not desensitized to it because not you don't have just community of minnesota out there or minneapolis no you have the entire world going out there literally people in paris france are protesting like that says things yeah it says things so i really want to thank you jail you're incredible I, i i know we're gonna hear so much more from you and it's truly an honor to have somebody like you on our podcast. And I'm and excited I, to see where you're going to go after this. Exactly. Like once you graduate, Aww, like you. take uh, over the president. world. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally see that. And another thing, vote. But I think oftentimes we're so hyper-focused on our president, who we want our president to be, but we forget our oh, stickle, state and local. 100%. Local, local elections yes. are so important. The judges, the people that are putting these, they're, Climbers, yes, everything. 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 Please, you guys, just vote. This is not something Do your research just, before yeah. you head to the polls. That's all it is. Thank you, Jael. I just truly, truly, I'm so, again, we're so honored and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. I hope you and your family stay safe and thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Please keep in touch. Thank you for allowing me to have a platform as well and literally let me know if I can ever help with anything or if you have any initiatives with education or anything like that, please let me know. I would love to get in contact. We love you so Likewise. much. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Bye. Honestly, truly, Giles really blew us away 
with everything that she said. I, I found her to be so incredibly refreshing and honest. And it was just so interesting to see this from perspective of somebody so young who is in a university right now, who is very self-aware and aware of her surroundings. And it's incredible when she mentioned the fact that it's like, as a university, if you have your own set of values, how can you associate yourself with somebody or an organization that does not have the same values as you? And, you know, we're seeing all these protests and people say, well, what are protests doing? What do they do? Oh my God, if you go on social media, you'll see so many threads of what these protests have done and what they have accomplished. It's it's honestly incredible. And I think we tend to knock on the younger generation, but they're really the ones inspiring change. I mean, this is just a prevalent uh, example of how one voice can really make a difference in, in all of our universities and all of our lives. That is true, because even just recently, they passed uh, Brianna Taylor's law, Brianna's law, basically, it's called, and it's the no-knock warrant, and it's unfortunate because I feel like sometimes we kind of do forget about the black women who also have been murdered at the hands of police brutality and whatnot, and it's just like somebody like her we definitely don't want to forget, and obviously when we record these episodes, a lot of things are unraveling post-recording these episodes, so there might be even more changes, but it's incredible to just see these laws being passed right now in favor of those who have been oppressed for hundreds of years and it's just that's what we need and we have to keep fighting and that's the thing like when it when it comes to our guests like she she doesn't want to just stop at the petition you could tell the fire in her voice like you she literally there's just so much more work that needs to be done but we can't stop we have to jump on this train and just honestly just keep going and going and going and just working together and it just it's in every aspect of your life and it's not just you know walking around and you know running into the wrong cop and or whatnot it's just like from education to housing to everything even to food we talked about that as well i mean food deserts are exist and now they're even more of a, a strain on those communities because a lot of those supermarkets and places like that have been looted so now they're struggling even more but as you were saying, it is hopeful to see the passion in these people's voices. And it's not just one person. I mean, every time I go on social media, every time I step out just for a walk around my neighborhood, I am seeing so much change already taken effect. I'm seeing a community come together who is demanding change. Um, today, there's actually a, a sit-in at one of the colleges to do the exact same thing here in Chicago that JL was able to accomplish in Minneapolis. And so, we're recording this on Saturday. So it's yeah. awesome. It would be nice to just, you know, do a follow-up and see what happens exactly. with that. And by the way, you guys, uh, Friday, which is June 19th, is Juneteenth. So go out into your community and support whatever protest there is out there, wherever organization or whatever, anything that's going on there. Honestly, I took the day off because I feel like our voice, every voice matters, and we always have to stand next to our black brothers and sisters and do whatever you are capable of doing and what capacity you have of doing. I don't exactly have any plans, but I know there's a lot of protests happening in Chicago, but it's just like you have to also go, the protests are amazing, but let's also go beyond the protests. Once the protest is done for whatever hour you're there for, continue to do the work, whatever it is. So inshallah, these episodes have been really opening your eyes and opening your hearts and allowing you to just push yourself to motivate yourself to make some changes you want to be the generation that one day tells your grandchildren i was living in this time during this time and this is what i did exactly and Michelle, look this is what we've dismantled this is what we've accomplished and i was one of those people who was able to do this but again don't be hard on yourself do what you're capable of doing so exactly hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you guys next week bye